2: Yeah, Matt, Matt, you ask the really difficult questions. Is that is that the way you guys work? Is it like good guy, bad guy? Good it like, cop, bad cop. Good yeah, cop, like, bad cop.
1: It's lights out!
0: Hello and welcome to the cut to the race podcast it's Monaco weekend Saturday today and we've uh, we've got some very exciting things to talk about today we've got uh, on the show we have Matt how are you sir it is morning in the UK which means it's uh, what time then
1: it's somehow even earlier morning here in the States uh, I'm up I'm caffeinated and I am ready to dive into this <laughs>
0: fantastic
1: and we have a
0: another
2: guest on the show this week by the name of Mark Gallagher how are you sir? I'm really good, Oli. Thanks so much for having me along, and uh, thanks, Matt, for getting up at the crack of dawn to join us. Wouldn't miss it. Um, So, Mark, for people who don't know who you are,
0: um, I normally say, can you summarise yourself in one sentence? I feel that that's (laughs) going to be a bit unfair. So, can you summarise yourself in one, let's try a minute,
2: today? Yeah, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, So, I've essentially spent all my career in and around Formula One. I um, came into Formula One in the 1980s. I spent... uh, Seven years working in the media. I uh, worked with a couple of major sponsors at the time, uh, Marlborough and Cannon who sponsored McLaren and Williams. And then I joined Eddie Jordan. Was part of uh, the Jordan team through until two thousand and four. I was on the management board uh, there from ninety eight onwards. Uh, then I joined Jaguar Red Bull in the transition. Um, there's a little bit of a story to that, but I was with Red Bull Racing right at the beginning. Uh, even before they employed Christian Horner. Um, and then I set up my own team, uh, which we ran for 10 years, uh, status Grand Prix. We did uh, A1GP, we did GP3, we did GP2, and we did a, we did sports car racing. Um, and then for my sins, I got asked to come and run the Colsworth Formula 1 business, which I did until uh, 2012, did for a couple of years, uh, supplying engines to four of the teams. And... Since then, I run my own business, uh, do a lot of consulting in Formula One, work with a few drivers, uh, sometimes help teams out with commercial problems, and that's me.
0: Amazing. I mean, wow, that's, that's a tough one to summarise. Where do I start picking, at, picking away at this? Um, so, I mean, you, you've, you've, you've done all of these different things. Um, you're also a journalist, you're a broadcaster as well. Yeah. Which, which one do you,
2: do you find the most exciting? Which one really gets the blood flowing? I love the commercial side of the sport, and uh, you know the the writing and the broadcasting is is only is really a function of the fact that I enjoy communicating um, the sport. But actually, in terms of the day job, the the reason I got involved in in a team, uh, you know, jumping from working in the media was I, I so enjoyed working with with Marlborough and with Canon, on and that was on. Public relations. That was on writing PR materials and host, hosting events. With um, you know, back then it was like Nigel Mansell and Ricardo Patrese and At Williams, for example. So I really enjoyed that as a as a young um, you know person getting involved in Formula One. I, I found that commercial side really interesting. And then at Jordan, um, I uh, really got my teeth into working with sponsors working with technical partners I, lo- I particularly love working bringing a company into formula one that needs to create a technical case study like a information technology company or something so I, I really enjoy the nitty-gritty of uh the commercial side um but what what kind of then happened Ollie was that after after doing that for quite a long time I realized that in addition to the commercial side I was really interested to to understand the operational side which is why I decided to set up a racing team and that's not something that normally commercial or marketing people do it tends to be something a technical director might do and I found that whole p- period incredibly instructive uh, it taught me mainly what not to do at the beginning but we, we got it right after a while and we won the A1GP championship in 2009 but, um, and we became a winning team in GP3 etc so the commercial side comes first but closely followed by sort of team management, running a team, uh, all that side of it. And, and that's, still, that's still what fascinates me to this day. It's the iceberg below the surface of what most people spend their time talking about.
1: You know, it's fascinating you talk about kind of the divergent path you've taken to the roles you have overseen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've done a lot of things that people on the program and corporate sponsor development side would only dream of. You know, how do you uh, manage to succeed both in the boardroom, on the television, in the broadcasting side of things and on the track? Or is it just you're able to focus on something when you're invested and succeed in it or are you just suited to that particular role at that time?
2: Well, well, it's very kind of you just to put it that way. That's everything I've, I've done. Um, I, you know, I've spent some time in broadcasting. I actually really enjoy broadcasting, but. It's not my natural forte, and um, there are much much better broadcasters, professional uh, commentators, and and broadcast journalists. But I do like contributing to to broadcast journalism. Um, I enjoy writing a lot more than broadcasting, and uh, I've seem to have come back, seem to have gone full circle to that. So that's why I'm writing uh, again these days for Grand Prix Racing Magazine. But the um, the, the the thread. Uh, Matt, that runs through everything is that I'm deeply passionate about the sport and I unashamedly um, love Formula One. So um, I know lots of my friends follow MotoGP and lots of other categories of racing. I'm pretty tunnel-visioned, uh, appropriate on Monaco weekend, um, I'm pretty tunnel-visioned about the fact that Formula One's the pinnacle of world motorsport and there's so much to it. And the ins and outs of the sport really fascinate me. And as a business, and it's, it is a sports business, uh, it only works if the the deals are in place and the money is flowing and the sponsors are happy and the technical partners are getting out of it what they want. And, and the reason that I've kind of, for example, the reason I took the job at Cosworth was my brief was very simple, was to make sure that Cosworth... For the first time in its history, would get fully paid by all of the customer teams that were were buying their engines, and I mean I'm very pleased to say in the whole time in the time I was there, the team got paid every penny uh, by all of the teams, including the the financially struggling uh, teams that uh, had come into Formula One in 2010. So it's a commercial side of the sport that as i say really interests me but the thread that runs through all of my work is the fact i I, i'm very passionate about formula one and i love communicating it i mean during your time working in formula one you you've
0: you've worked with a lot of the greats we're talking world champions we're talking those names that uh, are in in the stars so senna (laughs) schumacher button um Part of this podcast, we like to understand that the sort of the other side of of, of these people. Um, were, there, were there any of those people that you really connected with, you know, the actual human side
2: rather than just what you see on the TV? Not the three guys you've mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, I mean, Ayrton, I did. I hosted a few um, presentations with Ayrton and I interviewed him Um with my journalistic hat on. So I didn't know Ayrton Senna, but I I got to meet him and spent some time uh, briefly, one-to-one over a coffee. Um, With Michael, obviously, he made his debut uh, for Jordan 30 years ago this year. Um, In fact, the spa anniversary is coming up in uh, August. And I worked with him for one weekend at Jordan Grand Prix. And of course, then he jumped ship and went to Benetton. But I'll tell you an interesting insight to Michael, and that is that a full decade later after he had won two world championships and was now driving for Ferrari he would stop and chat and that tells you a lot about the person Um, he had no reason to stop and chat to to me I'm not a chief technical officer or a team principal I mean to him I was just a former you know PR guy at Jordan so um, I have a lot of time for for, had a lot of time for Michael as a human being uh, as well as for His achievements as a racing driver and uh and I I think today to this day um I would kind of stand over and defend Michael and his career because we all know that he sometimes stepped over the line but I think when you look at the take a helicopter view of Michael Schumacher's career and his life and subsequently what's happened um you know I think we we all owe him a great debt of gratitude for what he did for Formula One um but in terms of the drivers that I've connected with um I mean, I'm very fortunate that I still work with a number of them. I got to know Mika Hakkinen right at the beginning of his uh, career when he was in junior formula. And it's um, and we still work together on a week-to-week basis now. And, um, you know, I was watching a clip last night of Mika qualifying um, at Monaco and it was reminding me of... Just, just how good he was. I don't know why I need reminding. I mean, we all know he was amazing, but uh, it was... it. But to to work with Mika, I think we connected because we met when we were both very young at the beginning of our careers. And then equally with DC, you know, D- David Coulthard and I met... Um, we met prior to starting to work together. We started working together uh, when he was racing in Formula 3000 in um, 1993. And... Um, I had I was kind of freelancing when I started working at Jordan so I didn't get a I didn't have a full-time job there until the end of 94 so I was doing lots of other things in between races so I worked with DC uh, when he was driving for Pacific Grand Prix as a teammate for Pacific Racing as it was then uh, as teammate to Gilles de Ferran, and DC and I you know work together still week to week day to day in fact I, we've got an event this coming monday so i think for for me i've been very fortunate to to get to know and work with a number of these guys and what i can share with you about them all is that on the one hand they are each and every one of them is a normal you know is a, is a is a normal grounded down to earth uh, person they have their weaknesses their fears their um, their doubts, their emotions, uh, you know, that and, and it often comes home to me that all of these drivers are um, just like you and me. The one difference is that they happen to have a skill uh, that hopefully they have r- refined and uh, focused on to the point where they become exceptionally good at racing cars and to get to Formula One, you have to be except you have to be more or less exceptional. Uh, we we know there are some outliers on that in terms of pay drive pay drivers, but you know for the top guys, they are exceptional at what they do, and they have an ability to to take on what is a very complex job, and it's I think it's become more complex over the years. Um, thanks to the technology and, and the demands and the number of races and the way that the regulations are run and the amount of scrutiny that they are constantly under. So I, I really would say my takeaway is that for the, all these top guys, you know, they are ordinary human beings, but they have a, an exceptional skill um, and it is something to behold. And I think, um, I think it's right that we should hold them uh, in a degree of awe Which is one of the reasons I find the way some of the modern PR is done quite strange, because the 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 teams very often ask drivers to do things today that Michael Schumacher and Ayrton Senna would never have agreed to in a million years. But in the in the interests of a social media clip or, um, you know, getting an amusing meme, uh, they get they get drivers to do things which which I think slightly demean them, because I do think what their their talent is is pretty awesome.
1: It fascinates me that you talk touch on that. Ollie and I are actually having a conversation a couple of days ago about how there's this weird divergence with the way PR is conducted in Formula One. You have the putting forth of the drivers as superhumans, as somebody that has achieved another plane of existence that, you know, the mere mortals like us can't achieve. And then you have the videos of Lando Norris, you know, giggling at inappropriate jokes or doing the drawing tracks with the blindfold on like uh, Aston Martin did with Sebastian Vettel and Lance Stroll. And in the back of my mind, the whole time, all I can think about is what would Nicky Lauda say if he was put into that situation? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, where do you think we should draw the line on both the scrutiny and access balance with these drivers? Mm -hmm. and How is that affecting how the sport is seen for the newcomers?
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, Matt, that you, you were talking about it because, I mean, I, I do belong to an older generation and I'm very aware of that. And I really, really love so much of what's happening in, in the Liberty era of Formula One in terms of opening social media, in terms of the Netflix series, in terms of esports. I love the whole esports thing. Um, so there's so much about the appeal of the sport to younger audiences, which I completely get. I mean, I've got a couple of kids here in their 20s now, but, you know, they spent 20 years at home and, uh, uh, you know, they had a dad involved in Formula One. So, you know, I, I know what the younger audiences enjoy and how they consume media in a different way. Um, but you, you make a very good point. And actually... Um, I was about to say, I hope Matt Bishop is not listening to this, but maybe I'm hoping that he is listening to this because when I looked at the Aston Martin thing the other day, you know, um, not in a million years do I think that that's the right the right approach. Um, it's mildly amusing for about three seconds, and. I'm not sure what it does to enhance the brand, the team, um, the positioning of the drivers to make Lance Stroll look like a more serious Formula One driver. Not that he isn't serious, but you know what I mean. You were, if if you were behind Lance Stroll, you'd want everything that he was doing to position him as being incredibly earnest about being the best Formula One driver he could possibly be. And equally for Sebastian Vettel, um, I mean he's he's a big fan of Michael Schumacher, Michael. Michael would have had a very short reply to being asked to do a PR stunt like that. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, the drivers should be positioned uh, as very, very special uh, people. They've got an incredibly difficult job to do. And actually, there is a better way to communicate their human qualities, because I, you know, and it, again, I am a very aware of of uh, the passing of generations, but you know, for me, the great thing about access would be to, you know, go and have an interview with Sebastian Vettel at home, uh, watch, uh, you know, see him playing another sport that that maybe you didn't realise that he was doing. I mean, we used to see great clips of Ayrton Senna jet skiing in Brazil. You know, people used to love seeing that kind of la- lifestyle. You know, what are they doing outside or Nicky Lauda flying a, flying a plane or... Um, you know, Michael Schumacher with uh, Car- uh, Corinna, his wife, and uh, her- their horses, you know, the, 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 and the ranch in the US. And, you know, there's so much about their lifestyle that you can show the cars that they're passionate about. I do think that, you know, going down the rabbit hole of, of uh, you know, mildly amusing social media clips is, I'm not really sure what that adds to to the spectacle. And I think this is why Netflix has had such a, the drive to survive series has such a an interesting impact because what that's done is it has provided a counterpoint to the constant talk about the technology and tires and setups and engine modes and by providing the human side of uh formula one the doubts and the fears of drivers people here in the middle of uh, contract negotiations etc so I think the human side can be presented in an incredibly compelling and funny way. You you know, you can have fun with that too. Uh, But I think the, yeah, I think on the the, the PR side, it's um, somehow lost, I think, its way in terms of what they're actually trying to, what they're trying to achieve.
1: So I'm going to put you in kind of the hot seat on this one, Mark. (laughs) Uh, you know, with your experience as the go-between, the intermediary, with these brands and sponsors, uh, with people who are so reserved, like Sebastian Vettel, who has no social media presence, yeah. and then going back to the days of, like, Jackie Stewart, where they had the home videos of all the drivers and their wives together, yeah. how would you create or instill that balance, and what do you think the proper ratio of fun, goofy, behind-the-scenes, and then media-driven... Uh, sponsorship and promotional materials would be and how would you create that
2: yeah well gosh uh, you want me to develop a strategy on the hoof Um, yeah (laughs) i have my notepad here i'm taking notes (laughs) i mean people pay good money for that so (laughs) um, (laughs) 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 Um,
1: uh,
2: interesting i mean i the very fact matt uh that you you know you, you you mentioned about the home videos of the drivers and their families together you know i think that You remember that and it's it's fun to see the drivers away from their race environment and I think with someone like Sebastian Vettel I mean he's not a frivolous guy and I think that's one of the reasons he probably doesn't have a a direct social media presence the other the other reason I'm pretty sure is when he was driving for Ferrari, I mean, I've seen Ferrari's social media guidelines, which is which are issued to the drivers, and now it's changed in recent times. But when Sebastian was driving for Ferrari, so I'm talking about during the, the Bernie Eccleston era prior to Liberty, the social media guidelines at Ferrari meant there was no point in having an account because you weren't effectively going to be able to post anything anyway so i think
1: it wasn't even your own it was an extension thereof of uh, ferraris in yeah essence. i
2: mean if you if you had if you had your own uh you know you didn't have freedom to to uh post whatever you wanted in 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 uh in a way that might be detrimental to the team so i think sebastian he's, he's he as i say he's not a he's not frivolous about his career and therefore i think with someone like him it, it would be important to sit down and say well actually let's talk about can we do some PR around the things that are your passions? Now, so for example, we know that he bit rebuilds motorcycles and that he, uh, he loves tinkering. He loves working with his hands. Uh, we know he's passionate about the environment. So I'd be, so here are some really cool things that you can work with because you can then sit down with some of the sponsors and say, well, why don't we create a series um, around some of these insights about Sebastian's life as his experiences. also now at this stage that he's at in his career some you can do some reflective uh pieces so when you go to a new track you could have Sebastian talk about his victory at that track and you could reflect on past victories now I think it's interesting how you know for example pe- uh, team teams are a little bit reluctant to talk about successes that their drivers had with another team but the point is that one of the reasons Aston Martin signed Sebastian Vettel because it because he's a four times world champion. So actually to turn up in um you know Spain or Italy or somewhere and say, So Sebastian, talk to us about that terrific victory you had, and uh you know, were the things that we were unaware of at the time, and then he could give you lots of insights into that. So I think what I'm talking about doing is, is curating stories and content about the the actuality of someone's life, the truth of their life, the narrative of their life, and drawing that out and then similarly with sponsors what I learned early on was that you know with Marlborough for example um you know not you're not going to try and be um creating something about you know the cigarette brand as such what you're going to be doing is you're going to be creating experiences and content uh, around that and I spent several years working with Marlborough developing features you know I remember doing um uh, I remember writing a feature uh, with James Hunt. He was a Marlborough ambassador and, you know, it was a feature all about his time in Formula One. And then it was an, another feature that we did about, you know, what he thought of a particular driver at the time that uh, was a Marlboro driver in F1. So it was a, it was a James Hunt feature on Ayrton Senna. And then I remember we made a documentary, which I wrote the script for, uh, for for Marlborough. And again, that was a series of interviews with James Hunt and Nikki Lauda and you know talking about their insights to different facets of the sport. So the reality is that, you know, with sponsors and with drivers, you can curate content. And actually today there's an embarrassment of opportunities. I mean, my goodness, you know, this I, I would have loved to have been doing my old job today because of social media, because of YouTube, because of the ease with which you know, we don't need a film crew to turn up anymore. I mean, you know, unless, unless you, you particularly want to go to that expense, you can you can achieve quite a lot with a handheld camera or, a, you know, a drone or, you know, a GoPro or whatever. And um, that the reality is that there's never been an easier way to create actually compelling, great content. And that's why, again, it brings me back to the kind of some of the frivolous stuff. I'm mean, The one that really triggered me was... Um, it was, I think it was Max Verstappen. Yeah, it was Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo. And Red Bull did a thing where they they filmed them eating marshmallows. Do you remember that?
1: And, Stuffing their faces. And they were trying to get them to say a phrase at the end of it, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, but there was how many marshmallows yeah. can you eat in 60 seconds? And can you yeah. say something? And I sat there looking at it and I thought, what part of this represents... Any kind of actual strategy. You know, what um, right. you know, if you if you, if I walked into Dietrich Mateschitz's office and he said, Listen, you know, how's the F one program going? What 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 are Daniel and Max up to today? And you said, actually we're 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 filming this, it's hilarious. We're filming this hilarious. <laughs> I never considered like, it from that you point. Know, Honestly, Dietrich, you've got to try it sometime. Actually, I've got a spare bag of marshmallows here with me. Would you like to see how many you can eat in 60 seconds? And I would fully expect him to say, you know, what the actual are you doing? You know, these guys... Shut the door on
1: your way out. (laughs) Yeah,
2: exactly. Don't let it hit your ass on the way out. I mean, you know, it's just like unbelievable. And... And that, and I think I do think that's been a that has been a wrong turn. But I, I come back to the fact that I think liberty and, for example, Netflix, uh, the Netflix effect is is exceptional. You know, it's it's been amazing, and uh, um, and long may that continue. I mean, I think they, I think Netflix can run and run. This could be an annual thing. So long as the teams allow them to drill deeper and deeper into the background to Formula One and tell those human interest stories. Because, you know, when you've got hundreds of people in each team, there's lots of lots of stuff that can be talked about in terms of all the people behind the scenes in Formula One. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, I actually think uh, just just reflecting on on the conversation we've had that... um, one of the most compelling things I've seen recently is is the DbX Aston Martin advert with Sebastian vettel. I think that was brilliantly done and it's a shame that you see that and then you go into the right now we're driving race remote control cars around the paddock type thing um because yeah. I think that advert was beautifully done um, yeah. but my, my, my I wanted to talk a bit about Lewis because he's <laughs> clearly got a few things in his in his contract. You don't see Lewis <laughs> eating marshmallows, do you so has has his status allowed him to get away from playing that sort of that that clown game, um, and and earn him a bit more respect? And he clearly uses his platform to talk about other things as well. Is that the right thing for him to be doing? Um, are yeah. Mercedes giving him too much freedom? Or
2: well, I think the first thing to say is that Mercedes Benz wouldn't ask him to do PR stunts like that anyway. And uh, you know, Bradley Lord, who's the communications director at Mercedes, does a he and his team do an exceptional job, and I think they know they've got a. a, a uh, an iconic superstar on their hands in Lewis, and they know that they know that in Valtteri they have someone. Also, who's very earnest about his career, and I think I think Valtteri, for example, does a great job on, with his social media posts, particularly during the winter. When he takes off to northern Finland uh, with his partner Tiffany, and they they have great times. I love looking at all of that content that he he puts up there. And but with Lewis, you know, you've got a superstar in your hands, and and he knows he's a superstar. Um, but he wants his social media to to have a purpose, and for Lewis, his purposes are very clear. You know, he cares about lots of. Uh, There are lots of things that that are of a concern to him. Um, It's not just, you know, racism or sexism or the environment or, I mean, this week he was messaging about the uh, Israeli-Palestine conflict, uh, Palestinian conflict. Um, So he, from a a, a Save the Children perspective, so Lewis has lots of things that he's really keen to communicate and Mercedes-Benz are clearly very happy for him to do that and and I think, you know, while, and we all know Lewis has his critics, but, you know, his his critics have no position really to to be attacking him because actually Lewis genuinely is the first Formula One champion to use his profile to campaign for things so openly and... I think so. Honestly, I think it's a very, I think it's a very honest thing. He's not doing this for PR purposes. He genuinely sees things and he feels that they are important and he wants to say something about them. I was in Australia two years ago when we had the horrendous uh, forest fire season, uh, which was absolutely devastating. And you know, Lewis was the only global sports star to come out and make a substantial. I mean, he made a massive contribution to the. To a number of charities and the fire service, and then he subsequently visited Australia to visit the the the, the scenes of devastation, and and so Lewis is very sincere in that, and. Uh, you could. He could probably say that his his social media presence could do with sometimes lightening up a little bit because I suspect I would love to see Lewis having a really good belly laugh at something, and and really enjoying himself. And I think we get we gain a slight insight to that with. Uh, his hobbies, you know, his skiing during the winter. You quite often see him in Colorado and he's going off piste and he's having a he's having a ball and you know he clearly loves the outdoors and and I think that's great. And and I'd love to see more I'd love to see more of that. But then to answer your, your sort of other point, Ollie, about Lewis's freedoms, L- Lewis's freedoms work for him. And this is something that Total Wolf has repeatedly you know, responded to. And I think we now really, we all should now understand that the reason that Lewis turns up so so damned focused and so full of energy to win in Formula One at the age of 36, you know, all these years after he made his uh, initial debut in Formula One, is because he can go away and enjoy these other things. He gets a brain break from Formula 1. He goes away, he does these other things and then he he can't wait to get back into the seat. And when he turns up, he's fully focused and as we have seen this year, he's uh, driving the you know he's he's driving as well as we've ever seen. And and in fact we're having to see a new side to him because he's got this threat from Red Bull and, and who knows this weekend the threat from Ferrari. So he's having, the team are having to work harder and work smarter. And it turns out Lewis is very good at all of those things. So I think it's uh, you know I think the freedoms absolutely work for for Lewis. And um, Toto tells a particular story about uh, I think it was a two week period when Lewis he did a he did a Tommy Hilfiger launch in Shanghai. He went to New York for Fashion Week. He went to I think Los Angeles and he went to London. He turned up at a Grand Prix. He'd been, it was Singapore. He turned up in Singapore having been literally around the world and stopping everywhere for about two days. And Toto felt, well, we're gonna see if this is too much for him. And he went out and he blitzed everyone. And Toto said, So, you know, we 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 have no reason to criticize. Actually, the opposite, we have every reason to support what he does because it works for him, and it's it's actually ensuring his longevity in Formula One. So long may it continue.
1: One of the things that fascinates me in what you were just talking about, Mark, is there's this unique ability with Lewis to where whatever cause he is championing, I, I agree with you as well that it's not disingenuous. It is 100% using his platform to effect change. Whatever he does, he is so on point, on message, that he almost negates the need for a PR team uh, to craft the message. Do you feel, with the history that you have, that there is too much of a PR emphasis in other drivers and the teams and sponsors, the way things go, to where we lose what's really mattering to the drivers? And once again, kind of tagging to what we talked about earlier, the Clarity into who they are and what matters to them as a person.
2: Yeah, that's a good. It's a good question. I mean, I think the the PR has to have a purpose in in communicating the team's messages. You know, what is it that's important for us? I mean, Aston Martin have, are having a very difficult year. Um, that kind of collateral damage uh, from the regulation change, and you know, for me that. That's something that really needs address. I'm not sure, gosh, Matt, if you are listening to me, I'm sorry, it seems like I'm having a pop at you and it's not really meant, but, I, um, but if you look at the Aston Martin situation, I'd be getting a lot of messages out there about the car, the changes in regulations, why the performance has dropped off the pace, what we're doing to address that. Um, I'm not sure it's particularly helpful when a team principal starts talking about taking legal action over regulations that everyone agreed to, for example, so you know that's that's a kind of thing where I kind of think that that should be a big big focus. Getting that messaging, absolutely right. Aston Martin, incredibly uh, famous company, uh, they need to have very credible, very authentic, very very clearly messaged points about their participation in Formula One, particularly at this very early stage because Aston Martin have only just arrived in Formula One as a brand. The team might have been around for a long time, uh, back to Jordan days, but Aston Martin is fresh to Formula One. So you have to be very careful about what you say in order to to, to establish your foundation. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, Tsunoda and some of the things that he has said uh, recently, which were just a little bit immature, you know, for, for, I mean, obviously a very talented driver, but just needs to... Keep his head down and, and get on with things. And then, from a driver per- perspective, you know, I you are right. You know, Lewis Lewis is very on on point. I know his critics say, you know, he's trying to save the world. You know, he's trying to solve climate change. He's trying to solve racism. He's trying to solve sexism. He's trying to solve this, that, and the other. Th- anything with an ism on the end of it. But he's just being very authentic. You know, he sees something and he thinks, wow, that's terrible. You know, i I want to I want to make my point clear uh, about that. And then. And then he actually puts his money where his mouth is. I think that's the other thing: is that he's not just saying stuff. You know, he's giving money to save the Children Fund. He's, you know, he's giving money for the the fires in uh, Australia. He's setting up the Hamilton Commission um, to look into uh, improving ethnic diversity um, and and diversity in general and inclusion uh, within uh, within the UK and within the Formula One. Uh, structure. So, you know, he's very earnest about those things. And that's why Mercedes are so happy to support him. You know, I think with the passage of time, um, we will come to look back on the last couple of years and realize we, we've lived through some pretty seismic changes. Um, you know, pandemic aside, obviously the Black Lives Matter movement last year and everything that happened as a result of that, the very fact that Mercedes changed their livery which some people said to me oh that's just that's just a coat of paint i mean what what does that mean but there is nothing more precious to a team than how they look because that that is that's how they are perceived around the world and i you know again just something We've kind of now become used to it, but just that shift, for example, really showed how Mercedes, from a communications PR perspective, were were happy, really happy to align themselves. In fact, they wanted to support uh, Lewis and what he was saying. And I think through the whole of the field... You know, I I would be sitting down with my drivers and saying, "Okay, we've got some PR ideas, but what actually, what what really gets you going? You know, what's the thing that you're really, really enthusiastic about? For example, what would you most like to do if you weren't driving uh, a racing car? And, um, you know, Matt, before you and I came on um, the show, you know, before we started recording... Uh, we were talking about aviation. Uh, we touched on aviation. So one one of the one of the last things I did at Jordan, even though I wasn't running PR uh, by the time I, I left the team, but a thing that came under under me was uh, just because of my connections. I had a, conne- a connection at the U.S. Navy in the Pentagon, and um, we organised for Martin Brundle and Ralph Furman to go over to uh, Pax River U.S. Navy base in Maryland, and we uh we took them up in a
1: couple of uh fighters and you're you actually put brundle in a fighter jet yeah. out of your all's control
2: yeah 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 and yeah and we we spent 3 days uh with the US Navy i've got very good connections uh still Clearly. still with still with the navy and the um and we had a blast and martin and ralph were i mean <laughs> To say they were well made up is an understatement. They were like this. This is actually the best thing we've ever done. This is this. You know, Martin Brundle said, "Well, you know, driving a j- driving a Jaguar down the Mulsanne straight at Le Mans, two hundred and twenty miles an hour, was amazing, but not as amazing as flying in a mock dogfight out <laughs> over um, the ocean and pulling seven G or whatever they were doing. And you know, they and Martin still talks about it. You know, so no." And that became a that became a fifteen minute item on ITV here in the UK, and the US Navy Public Affairs paid for that because it got fifteen minutes of publicity in the UK, and of course the UK being an important ally to to the US military. So that's the kind of thing that really turns you know turns me on. You know, I love working on a big PR activity that is quite different. You know, yes, a driver getting taken up in a plane is one thing. Two drivers getting taken up in two planes and flying in a mock dogfight. Now there, there's another, there's another level. It's you another know? So, to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, um, so that's the kind of thing that 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 I think really um, is worth working on. I would, I would rather have two or three absolutely outstanding PR events in a year than. Um, four mildly amusing social media posts each week.
0: I, I, I'm looking at uh, the, the, all the research we've done for this podcast and I'm like, there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> Ollie, jump in. You need to just shut <laughs> me and Matt up. No, no um, just in relation to that, I mean, um, you were a motorsport consultant for Disney Pixar's Cars yeah. 1 and 2. <laughs> so I, I, I'm linking this in because it's, it's reaching another generation of potential motorsport yeah. fans so yeah. what was your involvement with that and 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 how, how did you approach
2: it so that was a that was a really weird one so um i had a contact at buena vista international a film distribution company in london and they they were very passionate about f1 so we used to do a swap so i used to bring them to formula one events and they used to bring me to premieres and um we used to go to premieres of things like harry potter and uh, all the rest of it. So we had we had sort of some... And it was just good fun. You know, it was kind of a couple of couple of friends helping each other out. And then I got a phone call to say Buena Vista were, had been contacted by, uh, you know, by Pixar and they had this movie coming up called Cars and they wanted some help with um, doing a PR tie-up with uh, like the British Touring Car Championship and DTM and... They wondered like what, what was in Italy. Was there something good in Italy? And and I said, Well, why why are you tying up with touring cars? I said, Why aren't you tying up with Formula One? And they said, Oh, we can't do that because uh, you know, Formula One's owned by a guy called Bernie Eccleston. Apparently he's a complete nightmare to deal with and you know, he's gonna want a ton of money. And so we're you know, we're not even gonna talk to Bernie Eccleston. And I said, But <laughs> I said, But um, but why not? You know, why don't you actually do that? So anyway, I at any end I I volunteered, and they accepted that I should approach Bernie and uh, and put together a tie-up, and that's what we ended up doing. So we had a meeting in London mm. with a whole bunch of people from from Buena Vista and uh, and and Disney and uh, Bernie. And the meeting lasted after after all the worry. It took twenty five minutes for a deal to be done in which the the Cars movie was. Um, had its European debut at the um, Spanish Grand Prix, yeah. And then on top of that, we agreed for a number of Formula One drivers to do voiceovers in in cars. So famously, Michael Schumacher voiced over the um, Ferrari. This is a very. It's a famous scene in Cars One where he, he voices over a Ferrari. And then in different countries, we had different voices. So we had Giancarlo Fisichella in Italy. We had Takuma Sato in Japan. Um, and so through that, I got to know John Lasseter, uh, the founder of Pixar with uh, Steve Jobs. And um, and then they asked me if I would continue working with them on Cars 2. And we did some site visits. They came and spent a weekend with me at Monaco uh, to Grand Prix. And uh, there's a scene in Cars 2 where there's a kind of a, a Monaco style uh, a race. And so they they came and spent that weekend with me. and um, And I worked with them on and off for about four years and it was, a, it was a huge amount of fun I got to meet some very interesting uh, people um, one of the guys who was working on cars I asked him, you know, I said how did you end up working on this? he was like, uh, well, he said God, I love racing you know, I just absolutely love racing and I said, well, what did you do before Pixar? and he said, well, I, I worked with George Lucas and uh, I said, no, really? I said, you worked in Star Wars? and he said, yeah he said, um, he said you know the pod racers? You know the pod racing scene, and I said, "Yeah." And he said, "I, I designed all those." And wow. I said, you, des- "You designed the pod racers?" And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, I designed the pod racers, and you know, I, I, um, you know, that was my job, and because I love racing, and wow. and and it, it's just it's that's fun, you know, you are connecting two worlds mm. and realizing actually we're. We're all very much on the same page here. So um, it, it, it's, it amuses me to this day when people say, oh, the pod, you know, pod, some of the things in Formula One are heading in the direction of the pod races. Pod racing took its, took its inspiration <laughs> yeah. from Formula One. <laughs>
1: That's
2: incredible. <laughs> Yeah. The, the only thing that I wish, however, is that we don't have snipers in Formula One shooting at the cars, um, which uh, so far no one has come up with. I think with all of the things that are being looked at to shake up the sports <laughs> yeah, entertainment value, no no one has yet suggested that we have any snipers mounted on the balconies in Monaco. But um, I think that would be taking things a, a bit too far. I mean, but um, Jeremy Clarkson did it,
0: didn't he, one time, I think? Did he? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's definitely at snipers shooting at him. Driving
2: around. <laughs> I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If Anybody yeah, well, they, would. <laughs> yeah, they like guns and
1: planes and and all of that and top gear. Anyway, well, speaking of the way things are going, uh, we would be remiss if we did not get your thoughts on who's doing things correctly this <laughs> year for the 2021 season and preparing for 2022's new regulations, and who do you think's gotten it wrong.
2: God, Matt, Matt, you ask the really difficult questions. Is that is that the way you guys work? Is it like good guy, bad? It good it, cop, bad cop. Good yeah, cop, like, bad cop.
1: We'll make the furry guy, just make them all angry and frustrated, then I'll lob them softballs.
2: Jesus, Matt, you got me. You got me here, you know. Um, we're gonna have to have So who do I think has got it right? Well, I mean, clearly we know Red Bull and Honda have got it right because Honda went away and did did something amazing. I mean, considering how, how much they struggled to understand... the current hybrid regulations when they built that first engine for um, for McLaren uh, the GP2 engine huh? the
1: The GP2 GP2 engine (laughs) the
2: GP2 engine which was using kind of F1 combustion design from about a decade earlier which was one of the reasons it wasn't particularly good Um, but they go away and they come up with a completely new motor for this just for this year And, and it's it's outstanding so you know I think Red Bull and Honda have really done a great job I'm delighted that I'm delighted and disappointed and I'll explain this in a minute I'm delighted that Red Bull have set up their own powertrain division because I've believed for some time that the fundamental weakness for Red Bull is that they're trying to beat Ferrari and Mercedes who have got everything in-house and mm-hmm. unfortunately our sport has now changed we have to we all have to realize that The days of car manufacturers turning up every few years with a brand new motor and giving someone a ton of money are are probably gone, at least for a while anyway. Uh, I have got some hopes of Porsche coming in uh, for the next set of regulations. But I think, you know, for Red Bull, they have been racing with one hand tied behind their back um, by using customer engines particularly from customer engines from a company that they weren't getting on that well with at, at senior level. Uh, I'm talking about Renault. Um, so I think that, that Red Bull, strangely enough, have ended up being forced into doing something they never really wanted to do. They never wanted to set up a powertrain division, and now they've been forced to. And the budget cap has played its role in that because they they're essentially reallocating resources within the budget cap to create a a powertrain division, more or less. Um, and, that, and they've been given a great product by Honda to run with. So I think this year is really pivotal for Red Bull because I think what we all have to really take a step back and realise is that if Red Bull didn't see light at the end of the tunnel and Dietrich Mateschitz decided to pull out of Formula One, that would be a catastrophe for two teams. Uh, so it's great that they signed up to the new Concord agreement. It's great that they signed up to the budget cap. It's great that they have now set up their own powertrain division. It shows that Red Bull Racing are not going anywhere soon, and we really do need them to be in because let's face it, they've been the only team to consistently, you know, consistently be a threat to Mercedes uh, in recent years. Um, Ferrari, after a massive misstep, you know, the the, the misstep of twenty nineteen. Um, they paid a heavy, heavy price for that last year, worst year in 40 years. Great to see them back. And wouldn't it be great this weekend if they could continue the performance that we saw in practice uh, on Friday? Because, you know, I, for one, um, still, you know, we all have, a, I think, a small uh, sort of passion within ourselves, no matter which team we might really support. We all love seeing Ferrari do well because it's so so inherent to the sport. But Ferrari did have a, that was a big misstep, in 2019 with what happened and they paid a heavy price and it's good to see them staging Not, uh, it's not been like a revolutionary recovery but it's a good step forward that they've made and they're making no secret of the fact that their big focus is on getting it right under next year's regulations and I think here's where I come in with a kind of word of warning and the word of warning is that you know there's a lot of hope that 2022 is going to be a new era you know lots of uh, a much more level playing field everything I see in here leads me to believe that Ferrari and Mercedes and Red Bull are going to continue to be the the top teams because they have had the resource in the first place to approach the budget cap in the right way and in terms of generating Highly efficient designs, you know, within that budget cap, that are going to be very competitive. I think that they will do a great job. Um, So I don't think the status quo is going to be thrown out the window. Um, I think McLaren, uh, for me, have been the standout team of the last couple of years, and I think we all know that. Uh, So that's not exactly me giving you a deep insight, but they they've staged a formidable recovery from where they were and. They've staged that both on and off the track. They've staged it on track with Andreas Seidel's operation of the F1 team. The change in driver lineup, which has clearly worked extremely well for them. Uh, and I'm talking about the previous lineup and this lineup. So bringing in Carlos and Lando and then having Daniel join this year. Um, all of those driver changes have worked extremely well for them. They've discovered, a, uh, they've discovered someone who we knew was already very good, which is Lando Norris. And now we're seeing him going from good to great, and his performances this year have been just outstanding. And probably a little bit of a headache for Daniel Ricciardo to realize just just how good Lando Lando is. In terms of teams getting it wrong, um, you know, for me, the I'm sad uh, to see where Haas is, and uh, I'm not just saying that, Matt, because you're on on here from from Nashville, <laughs> but.
1: I, I, no quarter given, none taken, sir. No, I mean the thing
2: is that there's so much there's so much right that's happening in Formula One uh, at the moment in terms of you know the social media and the Netflix and the fact that we're going to have a second U.S. Grand Prix in Miami and you know politics aside, the fact that you know we've got a Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia coming and you know the, the championship is just expanding. You know, there's so much positive stuff that's happening. And having a successful American team, to me, is a very natural step. And it should be something that I'm sure it's something Stefano Domenicali would love to see. I suspect it's something that Gene Haas and Gunther Steiner would love to see. But what we've, what we've seen is a, is a pretty natural cycle. They came into Formula One, you know, kind of giant killing act. They were really, you know, rocking to begin with reality sets in over time and over time what you begin to realize is that there's a reason why teams employ so many people why they have so much resource why they have a factory where they do everything in-house the Haas business model was fraught with potential dangers and complexities as things matured and that's proven to be the case um so you know, that's that's been a shame. And then commercially, it clearly hasn't worked for them because they haven't landed the big, particularly American sponsors that I think they were hopeful of securing. And when you see big American companies like Oracle coming into Formula One with Red Bull, so there's no nationalistic tendency uh, in terms of sponsors sponsoring a national team. And actually to make things even more difficult, the American team is now covered in the Russian flag. You know, you've got... There's so much about Haas that I find frustrating. And it's not because Gunther Steiner and his team are not trying to do the best possible job. I am sure they're fighting every inch of the way to try and find a path through the minefield that is Formula One. But at the moment, it feels... It feels like they've... They've had a, a series of, of disappointments and have led them to the position that they're in today. And I really hope that they find a way forward because Formula One should have an American team. We really need to have an American driver. Um, these are the things that I think should be... I, if I were Haas, I'd be sitting in front of Liberty saying, how do we work together to to make that happen? Because uh, I think it would be... you know, Haas should be turning up in Miami with a US driver and having the whole the whole of the nation behind them. Do do you think we'll see Haas
0: as Haas next year given given what you're seeing now? Do you think it, it you know there's going to be a transformation or
2: I don't I I honestly don't know Ollie and mm. uh, um, you know I've I read all the speculation um, I haven't spoken to anyone in Haas directly for for a while um, Their factory is just down the road from me here. Um, You know, I live in a village outside Banbury. Um, I drive past there uh, periodically. And the, the, you know, the reality is that um, it's not looking good because, you know, Mazapan's father is, you know, exceptionally wealthy he's therefore either going to be one of doing, he's going to be doing one of two things. He's either going to be keeping his son in Formula One and providing that much needed funding because the team needs funding. Mm. So he's going to continue providing that funding, which means his son will continue in Formula One, which means that that presence will be sustained for as long as he wants to put the money in, and and you, in my experience with with billionaires, it takes about three years before they get bored. You know, the first year there's a novelty. You know, wow, look, I've got the I've got the red pass, I can go on the grid. You know, wow, it's amazing. You know, year two, it's still quite a lot of fun. Actually, year two, you've learned the best restaurants to stay in and the hotels mm. and how to do Monaco and everything. It's when you get to year three. And you realise that you're still last and that actually your accountant has just phoned you to say, how much are we spending on this? Um, so that's when the rot sets in. And um, I think, so therefore, I think Mazapan's going to be around for a while as long as he's prepared to spend that money. If Gene Haas decides that he needs to exit or that he needs someone to to uh, share the burden and sells um you know, substantial stake to to Mazepin, Then, you know, that's the team's future, and um, and if that's the case, um, I would have big concerns about their uh, ability to to stay around um, mm. more than more than another two or three seasons. Because then, once a team is in the hands of someone who's in it for different reasons you know they're in it, if they're in it just for their son um and uh and by the way they think it's easy because they don't they don't understand how difficult formula 1 is that's usually a pretty quick r- route to disaster and we've seen that you know repeatedly over the years you know tony fernandez with with Catrim, you know give a bunch of people a quarter of a billion pounds and and let them go car racing for three years. You know, there's no strategy uh, behind that, so it, it inevitably it runs out of steam. And uh, equally with you know with with Mazepin, I think ultimately that will happen. I had experience with Marussia. Um, I brought Marussia into Formula One um, because actually I met them at the Frankfurt Motor Show um, at a time when Virgin Racing were. Um, Struggling to find money and struggling uh, in their early stages in Formula One, and we did a deal where I got Marussia to pay Virgin Racing's engine bill, and so the money came from Marussia to Cosworth, not to not to Virgin. And then Marussia liked it so much they bought the team, and that became Marussia Marussia Racing. But you know Andrei Cheglikov, who was a senior guy. Uh, I mean, he 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 ultimately was the main shareholder for Marussia. He's a top guy. But a lot of the people around him had no clue. Absolutely no clue at all. And and as a result it was never going to go anywhere. And so and it didn't. So it's not Andre's fault. Uh, in the same way that it won't be Mazapan's father's fault. It'll be the fault of the people around them. And and so it's you know, it's one thing to get the money. It's another thing to build a coherent business plan that allows you to do what Ron Dennis and Frank Williams and Eddie Jordan and all these other people have achieved over the years, which is to build a team that stands, stays around for decades on end. And it's the decisions that Haas, uh, Haas the team, and Gene Haas make now, that will determine whether this team's around, you know, when we get to 2030 or sooner. Okay. Uh, You've you've sort of
0: set yourself up for a little question there, which is, do you think that um, Lawrence Stroll is the exception to this?
2: Well, he is because of what he subsequently done. Because he got he got criticised for bringing Lance into Formula One as a driver, and then and then he bought a car company. Hmm. He bought a car, and he didn't just buy any car company. He bought James Bond's car company, you know. He yep. bought he bought Aston Martin.
1: It wasn't Skoda. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> Skoda,
2: you know, or you know, and it or it wasn't it wasn't some some minor brand you know he bought Aston Martin and uh, I think that Lawrence hes a formidable businessman and um, I had to think of how to say this I was about to say he's not stupid that's actually completely not what I mean he's a super intelligent guy so it's it's, it's the diametric orbit. he's a super intelligent guy so does anyone think that Lawrence Stroll doesn't realize that um, you know, he's going to get criticised for Lance being, you know, the beneficiary of all this funding over the years. Of course, of course he knows that. He knows that, absolutely. I mean, he, he reads the, the magazines and and reads online reports like anyone else. So, I mean, he knows he's going to get criticised. And they were criticised the whole way through Junior Formula. Oh, it's another billionaire turning up, and mm-hmm. etc. Well, of course, what's actually happened is that Lawrence has used his wealth yes for the benefit of his son and that's his right and I would do the same for my son if I could and you know David Coulthard's currently working with his son Dayton to bring him through through karting. and I don't think anyone will criticize David Coulthard for giving his son an opportunity so you know we'll all do what we need to do to help our kids and Lawrence is in the position of being able to to bring Lance through to Formula One and by the way Lance has also managed to do a good job. He's not been running around a second and a half a lap off the pace, looking like a bit of an idiot, um, you know, being lapped um, like the Formula Two driver this weekend. who shouldn't be in Formula Two, you know. So there's there's lots yeah. of um, so you know he's actually doing a good job. He's been on the podium. He's actually at times produced a performance which has made us all go, actually, that guy Lance Stroll is not doing a bad job. So you know he whether it whatever you think about his natural born talent he has taken the opportunity and he's worked at it and he's refined it to the point where he's actually a very competent Formula One driver today and I don't think he deserves any further criticism um the fact the other fact is that Lawrence has taken his funding bought Aston Martin saved the career of Sebastian Vettel which you know can only be a good thing brought him into Aston Martin is building a new factory is doing all the things you know let's let's remember the Aston Martin team today is running out of the same factory that we built in 1991 for a hundred people so they are doing something exceptional at the moment and they don't have their new factory yet so you know Aston Martin under Lawrence Stroll has clearly got a big long-term plan and I am also sure that Lawrence knows that in the fullness of time, Lance's Formula One career will end. And I'm sure that time will come. And when it does come, you know, there'll be no problem. You know, Lance will have had his opportunity and he'll probably end up with a, a permanent role in the team and and all that kind of stuff. So for Lawrence, this is part of a, a longer term uh, business strategy. And he is setting about turning Aston Martin Park Company around. And... He is very determined to do the same with the F1 team. And I can imagine how absolutely furious Lawrence Stroll is with the way this year is going because of the regulation changes. And therefore, I know that Otmar and the management team there will be under huge pressure. But Lawrence Stroll is doing Formula 1 very earnestly and in in an incredibly serious way. And and that's a good thing. And I think some of the other people who come into Formula 1 over the years who haven't really appreciated it, in terms of the, the extent of the challenge, you know, we, you know, there have been embarrassments with those kind of uh, forays, but Lawrence Stroll isn't one of them. He's going to be around for a while.
1: I equate, and this is me eating my crow and uh, getting my comeuppance once again on the Stroll family. I equate Lawrence Stroll at this day and time to kind of the Carol Shelby Lamont entrance mindset. <laughs> you know, four was coming in talking about we can throw money at the problem and in essence buy the win. Yeah. And I think I initially misunderstood or mistook Lawrence Stroll's initiatives and ways of going about things as that mentality.
2: Yeah.
1: To purchase Aston Martin and tether that to your son and your race team to kind of conflate those destinies together is a genius, brilliant move. <laughs> yeah. it, it I think it shows that it's not a flash in the pan, yeah. as you say. It's not. It Stroll is here to stay. Aston Martin is here to stay, and uh, I really hope that Otmar has a really good therapist on hand because I'm sure somebody of Mister Stroll's drive does not get to where he is by being accepting of failure or anything being delivered less than. Not to say he's a tyrant, but that is a driven man. But let's and, say.
2: There's there's a there's a famous photograph I'm sure you've seen it of Lawrence Stroll in a meeting with Claire Williams, and um, <laughs> and 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 she's getting the full what we call hairdryer treatment. You know, it's kind yes. of you, you can you you could draw a bubble from his mouth. You know, of, of his disappointment, and and it's a it's a pity that um, actually Williams wasn't the beneficiary of the Stroll investment because. Um, but unfortunately, at that time, the Williams family weren't ready to wave the the white flag. Um And and as a result, Stroll moved on. And I think that's similarly the same thing happened with, with Total Wolf. You know, Williams had an opportunity with Total Wolf. They then had an opportunity with Lawrence Stroll. They didn't take either of those opportunities. The result is they, they sold the team much later on um, and losing the family involvement in Formula One. So that was... That was very unfortunate because I think it's a shame that the sport has lost a Williams family involvement and particularly Claire because I think she's a very fine person and uh, was very passionate about being successful. But Lawrence and Toto have, have taken their focus elsewhere. Toto to Mercedes, Lawrence to uh, to Aston Martin, and and also Lawrence I think is at stage in his career in his life where he now has the time and the energy and the the focus to devote to Formula One. You know he's made his money. Many times over, uh, together with his business partner Silas Cho, with uh, you know with Tommy Hilfiger, with uh, with um, the other brands that they've uh, that they've got involved in, and um, you know Michael Kors, for example. So that you know they've they've been they're already massively successful. They now plan to do the same thing with Aston Martin, and if they if they get it right, and it looks like they are going to throw everything at getting Aston Martin, the car company. Sorted out. Then I think the Formula One team has a real chance uh, of success, particularly given the Daimler involvement in Aston Martin. The fact that Daimler own twenty percent now of Aston Martin, the fact that um, you know that Merce- that Aston Martin's F One team is 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 effectively that almost it's not the sister organisation of Mercedes Benz F One, but it's uh, it's the first cousin, um, and that that's a good thing. And I think in the fullness of time, you know, Total Wolf and uh, and uh, Lawrence Stroll will be quite happy if Mercedes Benz and Aston Martin were finishing first and second and, and swapping around, and I think that's evidenced by the way they've done the safety car program this year, which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, it's it's very very exciting. But going back to my point, you know, I wish that was happening for, for Haas, um, and um, you know the day the day had that kind of that kind of coherent vision which would take them to to a good place. By the way, I should also say that I said I was both delighted and disappointed about disappointed about Red Bull doing the um the powertrain division. Uh my delight was that they they've done it. My disappointment is that they've decided to do it uh in-house uh and not to to do a deal with Cosworth because uh I I still have a a big part of me that loved I loved my time at Cullsworth I think they're an incredibly talented uh, organization they still have a formidable capability which we've seen recently with the Aston Martin Valkyrie project and the Gordon Murray uh, supercar the T50 and I know those guys would, would just relish the prospect of taking on an existing Honda engine and uh, and then subsequently uh, developing that further. So I th- I was a bit disappointed that that didn't materialize as an opportunity and uh, that, that Red Bull have done it in-house. But anyway, such is life, and uh, Cosworth continues to do other things uh, in motorsport
1: beyond Formula One. Oh, you keep giving me brilliant, brilliant segues, Mark, and I the check is in the mail, sir. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you talked about the way that Lawrence Stroll came into this realm of F1 to make things happen. Uh, And by talking of Williams, I feel to me on the outside looking in, I feel that Haas came in in a kind of a antiquated way of doing things. You know, Frank Williams was buying secondhand tires in the seventies and slapping those on his race cars and going about it. And I think that Gene Haas, not to say he went to that extreme, but had that mentality with this new shift towards the financial regulations are things like the Aston Martin Mercedes pairing, Toro Rosso and Red Bull coming together? Are those to kind of fall in line with those financial guidelines and constraints, or is that just a natural dynamic shift within the sport?
2: I, th- I think that's that's m- much more to do with um, strategy, you know, business strategy. There is there is a there is a sense to partnership and to sharing certain components. I mean, for example, um, it's very noticeable that what a very early decision that Williams have made under their new owners is to no longer manufacture their own gearboxes. And that was something that Frank uh, felt was really important. Frank and Patrick had, you know, that we had to have their own transmission department under the new regulations. I think you essentially only get to design a new gearbox every five years. So um, there's actually no point in having every team having its own uh, transmission department. Um, So, you know, that's one of the things that Mercedes-Benz can now do. So in terms of their redeployment of staff outside of the mainstream Formula One program, they have staff working on the Aston Martin uh, program uh, transmission, uh, and of course, uh, now Williams as well. So that that makes a lot of uh, sense. And uh, with Toro Rosso and Red Bull, clearly there are, you have a commonality uh, there in terms of, for example, the engine program with Honda, and now that's going to be in-house. Uh, and under the one thing to make a point of, of is that under the budget cap, um, Red Bull cannot make something for Toro Rosso or for AlphaTauri and and sell it cheaply uh, to to stay under the budget. Anything that you sell as a transfer across teams or within within uh, within formula one or within your company has to be transferred at a price which is a fair value price and that is determined by the cost cap commission so there is there what it says determined they determine that it is a fair value so you have to tell them how much you have charged for something and if they think that you're trying to come in under the target, Unfairly, you know, they can bring you up on that. So, actually, the the sort of in terms of pricing within the teams, there isn't an immediate benefit. But what there is is an opportunity to deploy resources so that you can have you could potentially have one person working for you, and they're devoting um, thirty percent of your time to your Formula One project, but they're devoting seventy percent of their their time. To all, all things that are outside of the budget cap, you, you literally could have it defined as much as that. So there is a there is a benefit to this new era in terms of teams being able to work together. The Haas structure, uh, in terms of working with Delara, in terms of working with Ferrari. There was a point in time that that worked for them, right at the beginning when they were effectively effectively running last year's Ferrari. Um, you know, it, it worked pretty well for them. I think as time has gone by, and I think partic- particularly because the commercial side of the team hasn't hasn't given them the the resource. You know, they're not getting the prize money. So if you're not getting the prize money, the funding has to come from the shareholders or the or the sponsors. And, and we
1: know the sponsors weren't paying them either.
2: Yeah, and, well. the sponsor, and the sponsors <laughs> and the sponsors weren't paying them either. Of course, I had that huge opportunity with Rich Energy, which uh, never quite came to uh, to fruition. But um, but the but like the Rich Energy thing really um, showed to me that there was a a degree of desperation and. Um, you have to be very careful who you go into partnership with, and you know, the, the, I'm sure the rich energy guys, you know, whatever whatever the story is behind the scenes on that, you know, they they have their own uh, business to run. But for Haas, it didn't come across as a particularly good episode, and um, and again, it, it it just raised the prospect that the team were struggling to find the right caliber of of partners and you know formula one today is such a big sport it's actually quite difficult to not accumulate partners at least if you're hungry enough and uh, I'm not saying it's easy to go out and find sponsorship it's it's not it's definitely very difficult to find sponsorship but it's not impossible so yeah Christian Horner talked to me about why Jordan was so full of sponsors and I made the point that we were very hungry for every deal, no matter how small or how how large it was. So if we saw a large deal in the marketplace, we chased after it, even if we knew that Williams or McLaren were going to get it. Um, And if there was a small deal out there that maybe other people were turning their nose up at, we would would chase after it. And I think that hunger really played to... uh, real strength that we had and over time we amassed a a terrific portfolio of sponsors and certainly during our kind of peak time in Formula One from 98 through to 2001 I'd say we were one of the one of the very best funded independent teams in the sport at that time and and that's a kind of approach that I think every team needs to take and I um you know, I think some, something has an, has not enabled us to crack that uh, particular problem. No, that, 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 that's a, that's a that's an interesting insight. Um, we we
0: have a little feature on our podcast called um, the Motorsport Time Machine. So this is um, <laughs> this is done by Callum, who couldn't be with us today. He does send his uh, send his regards. Hi, okay. Callum. Um, but the Motormort time machine we're going to invite you into it and you can go to any racetrack any formula any type of race you can go as a driver you can go as a as a team manager and um, it's up to you where you go really so uh, I'm going to open the time machine door and uh, where would you like to go (sighs)
2: Wow, what a fantastic prospect. Uh, It's amazing that you guys have a time machine. Uh, You really should publicise that more. It would be quite useful. It's only for our guests. It's only for special people like yourself. We we could solve so many of society's problems if we could just go back in time. We uh, could. Make sure certain people aren't born or something. I don't know.
1: We so. can't have Fernando Alonso knowing about the dominance of Mercedes <laughs> either and <in> capitalizing. No.
0: <laughs> but, but mylander actually went the wrong way in the time machine last week. He predicted um, that Lewis was an eight-time champion by accident. So um, oh,
2: right. okay, guys. Maybe he knows something we don't all yet. Maybe it's already decided. Maybe the maybe the predictive anal- maybe what they've done is they've got all ten teams to send the FIA their predictive analytics for the season, and they've realised. <laughs> They know exactly <laughs> how many races they're going to win. I, I actually he does have,
1: have Mike Massey in
2: his ear. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually have this theory that if you had, a, if you could have a Zoom call on a Sunday morning with all the race strategists and they had all their algorithms and software in front of them, they could probably accurately predict, you know, the top ten every weekend. The only thing that they cannot predict. Is some of the idiotic things that their drivers might do, but of course, with the top drivers, they tend not to do idiotic things, so mm. you know that's uh, it's all pretty good, anyway. In answer to your question, if I had a time machine, no, no, we do, we do, we do, and if you're invited have a time machine. I mean, I'm a, I, I was born in the 60s, and um, when I fell in love with Formula One, Jackie Stewart was still racing, and many years later, I got to. Meet Ken Tyrrell and actually briefly worked with Ken. Um, And not many people realize that uh, the company that Ken founded is now, of course, Mercedes Benz. Um, It's exactly the same company. If you go into Company's House in the UK, the founder of that company was Ken Tyrrell Timber Merchant and Nora Tyrrell Housewife. Uh, that's what it says. So, um, I, I have a big fondness for what Tyrrell represented as a team and as a family. So, if I, I would get into your time machine, and I would go back to probably 1969, uh, probably probably 1969, and I would go to any of the Grand Prix with with Tyrrell um, as a. I don't know. Do the lap chart. Sit beside Helen Stewart, and you know, do the lap chart, or uh, hold the pit hold the the pit board uh, out um, t- as Jackie was going by, or frankly, just sit in the paddock and drink coffee and and watch the world go by. Uh, it was a different time and uh, a very different different sport, but that that was the era when I, as a kid, fell in love with Formula One, and I would love to go back and experience the freedoms that occurred at that time, you know, to see Monte Carlo 1969, 1970 with no, no arm co barrier um, to speak of, and uh, the freedoms that existed back then. And also the legendary names that were in the sport at that time. I mean, aside from Jackie, I was, a, a I used to love Graham Hill. And when I then got to work with Damon at Jordan, you know, that it, that for me was it was a great moment, you know, to, uh, to 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 work with Graham's son. And again, as I've gotten older, so I, I kind of look back on that time. So that that's when it would be it would be nineteen sixty nine. I'm not going to give you a specific race. Um, I'm just going to be that time, that team. Uh, you know, that would be the era for me.
0: Uh, I think I think we'll take that one. That was that was a fantastic answer, and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, moving back into current time I think as we speak practice three is on in um, in Monaco yeah um, so for the people who are listening to this either tomorrow or, or next week <laughs> um, the, the this weekend would have already happened but yeah. in terms of this weekend um, the race tomorrow and and the championship that we've got ahead of us um do you think Lewis is going to take number 8 in terms of his world titles or do you think, you know, do, might might Red Bull come back this year?
2: I think Lewis will take title number 8. I think um I think he's stronger than Max. Um I think Mercedes is stronger than Red Bull. Um and I'm talking about fine margins here, but Lewis doesn't tend to make Mistakes, and if he makes a mistake, he learns from it. Um, I think Max's very unfortunate series of errors in terms of track limits have cost him really dearly at the beginning of this season. And it happened at a time when Red Bull appeared to have a slight advantage. And what that has done is it's handed the advantage back to Mercedes because Lewis was then able to tick those victories and the team has been able to develop the car and solve some of the issues that were, they were having. And I think it's really interesting. I read this morning a, a quote, a comment from Christian Horner about the fact that the the, the team is not rusty, that, that they know how to take the fight to to Mercedes. And it's interesting that he's being asked that question, that he's even having to respond to it, because I think what that does is it shows that we all have an awareness of the depth of capability that Mercedes-Benz have. Not only are they a seriously competitive organization, but they have an ability to respond. And this is not the first time that they've had to respond to a threat. And so they seem to be able to dig deep very quickly and to respond in a way that, to date, we haven't quite seen from Red Bull. So Red Bull need to really bring some upgrades and show some sign that they can not just take the fight to Mercedes, but actually overwhelm Mercedes. And that doesn't seem likely anytime soon. And then Max really needs to drive the wheels off the car, but not the wheels over the white line. You know, he needs to stay within those track limits. And he needs to also just look at, I mean, I wonder about the, 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 the degree to which the small the small issues then just combine you know within sport we all talk about marginal gains. so if you add all those if you make lots of little improvements across the board you add them together that becomes your competitive advantage well i'm a great believer in the in the inverse being true so if you have lots of very small mistakes they all add together to give you your competitive disadvantage and so when you see for example a pit stop in uh, the last grand prix where you know, Max comes into the pits unexpectedly. There's a miscommunication on the radio. He ends up in the pits. The team aren't quite ready for the pit stop. Pit stop takes four four seconds. You could come away from that race saying, well, Lewis would have won it anyway because he had a brilliant strategy and, you know, Max was never going to be able to defend the position. But that wasn't the only mistake. It wasn't the only thing that they got wrong. And, and you just can't afford to have those errors of any kind if you're going to beat Mercedes-Benz. So I... I'm sorry to say, because I am a big fan of Red Bull, having worked with them and, and knowing some of the people there, I'm sorry to say I don't see them at the moment beating Lewis and uh, Mercedes-Benz. And actually, if anything, I think what might happen as this season progresses is, is that we might see someone else start to steal uh, a victory or two. And that that's going to upset the rhythm more for Red Bull, I think, than for... Mercedes-Benz. So I think that there's no question that we have a prospect of a McLaren podium um, on a certain day in certain conditions with certain things happening. A victory for McLaren, not impossible. Um, and and then you have Ferrari. And as you say, by the time people listen to this, we will have had the Monaco weekend. But, you know, as we are sitting here at the moment, um, you know, Verstappen and Leclerc are currently battling for premacy in in practice three and you wouldn't want to put money against Charles Leclerc taking a dream victory on his home circuit because he's a massively motivated guy and he's had to spend a year and a half trading water as a result of what happened with Ferrari and and um the powertrain issue uh, in 2019. So, you know, if he gets a look in, Charles will take a victory. And uh, as I say, that does more damage, I think, to Red Bull's pros- prospects than it does for Mercedes.
0: Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I think as fans of the sport as well, we as long as we don't see Ham, Bot, Ver every single week, then we're <laughs> all right. Or or even as this year, it's Ham, Ver, Bot. But... Um,
2: yeah. I mean, the thing is, it, it, look, you know, we all we all know how depressing it's been having one team uh, dominating uh, the sport. It's been unprecedented. And we really don't want it to happen again um, anytime soon, which is one of the reasons I do think that, you know, never say never, but unless the FIA, Liberty, and all the teams manage to get future regulations completely wrong, this is probably going to be the, the most dominant era we will have seen in Formula One history because I don't think anyone wants to have another seven-year period when one team dominates. And therefore, I think there's every reason to believe Lewis Hamilton, some of Lewis's records will stand in perpetuity uh, because it, it, it seems unthinkable. I think if we get to the 2030s and someone else, you know, dominates effectively a decade of Formula One, you you can only say it's been a failure of the sport because i can promise you in 2010 when we sat down at the FIA i was in those meetings uh, when we sat down at the FIA to devise the hybrid regulations incredible as it may seem one of the absolutely key requirements was that we didn't give any one team the opportunity to run away with the ball and dominate formula 1 and that was discussed several times you know we don't want to create a set of regulations that enables one team to just dominate the sport, and that's exactly what happened. We, we you know, we, we, we gave one team, which was Mercedes Benz, the opportunity to define an engine design and structure, which meant that they did. They ran away with, um, they ran away with it, and so this was sort of an unintended consequence. I think we now have a lot more intellectual horsepower at play in Formula One, both at Liberty and at the FIA and in the teams. And that intellectual horsepower will be devoted towards ensuring that the next sets of regulations don't allow one team uh, to dominate. So it's, um, yeah, you know, I I have a feeling, you know, when you're all my age, you'll be looking back and saying, yeah, that Lewis Hamilton era was something a bit special because I don't think it'll ever be repeated. Well, only time will tell, um, Mark. There are so many more
0: things I want to ask you. No so, I, can we get you back on the podcast a, again sometime? Would you, would yeah, you let, be up for
2: that? Yeah, let's do. Let's do. Let's have a, a a return at the a return show at the end of the year. And you told me you like to have laughs. We haven't had a single laugh during this entire. I've laughed. I don't know about
0: you. I've, I've laughed. <laughs> <laughs> like, what Were you laughing?
2: We doing? Were you laughing at me or with me or? Um, uh, but yeah, let's have a return show. Be be very happy to chat to you guys and uh thanks so much for having me in the podcast and and you know well done to what you've achieved with this because it's uh it's not a small thing to make a podcast work and i, I know you work hard at it so well done
0: Th- thank you very much mark and for our listeners who want to follow you uh, where can they where can they find you
2: you can find me on on twitter um and um i don't post a huge amount but i'm on twitter and i do tend to respond to big things that have happened in the sport and you can find me at Mark Gallagher on Twitter um also on Instagram although I use that I warning I use that a little bit for some family stuff as well so you might you, you might actually be as likely to see me post something about my my Alfa Romeo engine rebuild as you are to see me post something about Formula 1 but um yeah very happy to um engage with anybody on social media thank you good stuff and we want to see how that alpha's going on uh near the end of <laughs> yeah. the year and, and one other thing i will just
0: say to matt is we'll do that we'll, we'll schedule it for a little bit later in the day okay
2: oh yes
1: top top yeah
2: listen <laughs> we'll listen matt i have to listen matt i have to tell you my wife wants me to take her to nashville
1: i will be your personal tour guide i will get you yeah. every complete workup on where no, to I'm eat being... where to stay where to go I'm being dead serious
2: because we I, oh. all, all through our marriage we've been having this discussion about you know going on uh, like going to a trip to some of the iconic music centers in um, in the in the US doing a little bit of a tour and she's a she's a huge country and western a country fan you know so mm-hmm. we uh, so yeah so I might, I might call upon you for a few uh, few trips and a uh, f- few advice uh, a few few pieces of advice on a trip rather than uh, relying on trip advice or we can go to matt and get some
1: leave it with me i'll <laughs> do all my research now just to be prepared absolutely absolutely at very your disposal cool.
2: thanks
0: guys thank you very much mark for your time and we will uh, catch up soon enjoy monaco Podcast Network.